All right, good morning, Rock Hill Church family. Morning, morning. morning. So Josh alluded to some sort of sporting event that's happening today. Is that, <laughs> is that the one with the home runs or the red cards? I always, I always get them confused, yeah. <laughs> Yay sports, yeah. No, really, just the Super Bowl for me means an opportunity to eat chicken wings, so praise the Lord for that. Um, we, we have come to the book of the Bible with the worst name ever, uh, Numbers. It just conjures images of spreadsheets in my mind, which, at least for me, yeah, for some of you, you love it. For me, it does not provoke excitement. So uh, the, the name of the book in Hebrew is actually much more interesting. In, in the Hebrew Bible, it's called In the Wilderness, which is just, you just cue the Indiana Jones theme right there, In the Wilderness. So how did we get into the wilderness? The series is called Thread, so we're following the thread of the story so far. So in Genesis, a few weeks back, God partners with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, your family is destined to bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham's family grows into the people of Israel. Then in the book of Exodus, God saves Israel from slavery. He gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, his covenant, and he says, this is what I love, and this is how I want my people to follow me. But Even when they fail to follow God's commandments, which they regularly do, God still provides a way for his people to live near him. And so last week, we looked at the book of Leviticus and the Day of Atonement in which we see the ugliness of our sin and the holiness of God, the high price that God had to make in order for us to be clean. So now we arrive at the book of Numbers. Uh, Israel has received the law, they've received these rituals of atonement, so in theory, they're ready to enter the promised land. But we'll see how that goes. So let me pray for us, we're gonna watch an overview video and then we'll dive right in, let me pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning. I pray that you would soften our hearts so that we could see the truth and the glory that you have for us this morning. I pray that we would see Jesus more clearly and learn how to follow him. It's in his good and perfect name that we pray. Amen. The book of Numbers was written by Moses sometime between 1440 and 1400 BC and chronicles the Israelites wandering in the desert. After giving the Israelites the law at Mount Sinai, God leads the people through the wilderness to the outskirts of the Promised Land, the land God promised to Abraham back in Genesis. On the edge of Canaan, Moses sends 12 spies to scout out the land. After seeing how strong the Canaanites are, most of the spies oppose God's plan and advise Moses that they'd be better off as slaves in Egypt. Because of their opposition, God punishes the Israelites by restricting any of the current generation to enter the Promised Land. Apart from two spies, Joshua and Caleb, this generation is subject to wander, never to step foot in Canaan. The people complain, wishing they died back in captivity. As judgment, God sends serpents into the Israelite camp. True to his character, however, God also provides a means for their physical healing through Moses' obedience. In their wandering, God continues to protect, preserve, and provide for the Israelites, 
reminding us of God's sovereign justice and love. When the nearby Moabite king asks a sorcerer named Balaam to speak curses over the Israelites, his prayers to curse them can only be uttered as blessings. Balaam even prophesies the coming of a victorious king out of Israel. Again and again, God takes what was meant for evil and uses it for his good. So one of the most uh, intriguing parts of becoming a father is that just in the last few months, I've had an increased interest in World War II, like out of nowhere. Like seriously, I did not care about it at all, but now some sort of like dad gene has activated. And uh, I'm, all of a sudden I'm learning about Operation Barbarossa. Have you heard about this? It's when Hitler's army invaded the Soviet Union and, and maybe what happens there would have happened if he had tried to invade you know, Duluth early this morning. He, their army was decimated by cold weather. Uh, I also learned that Napoleon had invaded Russia over 100 years earlier and was also defeated. So, so now, with this new dad uh, knowledge, I understand the wisdom of the Sicilian philosopher Vizzini when he told the dread pirate Roberts, you fool, you fell for one of the cla- classic blunders, never get involved in a land war in Asia, right? So, I bring up Hitler and Napoleon and the Princess Bride, uh, because we've all heard the old adage, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But here's the thing, Hitler had studied Napoleon. In fact, while he was waging war on Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, he was reading books about Napoleon's war on Russia. So here's the funny thing about human beings. Even when we know our history, we still end up doing the same dumb things over and over again. Knowledge of our past does not guarantee to protect us from making the same mistakes all over again. And our passage of Scripture this morning is a case study in repeated history. See, back in Exodus 17, right after God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, the people immediately begin to complain because there's no water in the desert. They fought with Moses, they questioned his leadership, and yet God provided water despite the people's rebellion. And that story in Exodus 17, we're told it takes place at a random spot in the desert known as Meribah, which literally means quarreling. But that is not the story we're talking about this morning. This morning we're talking about Numbers 20, where the children of that first generation come again to quarreling. They come again to Meribah, and almost the exact same events happen. So we're going to read through this story in the moment. For, for now, I just want us to wrestle with the reality that even when God's people, and I mean God's people then, the people of Israel, and God's people today, the church, even after we have been rescued by God's salvation, even after we've been told how to follow God in all of our lives, even after we recognize patterns of sin in our own lives, we still fail. We, the people of God, we are consistently inconsistent in our love and obedience to God. The church is just full of imperfect people, including the guy in the pulpit, right? We grumble and complain We tend toward hypocrisy, preaching the opposite or practicing the opposite of what we preach. 
We fall prey to these old patterns of sin, sins we've been fighting, wrestling with for decades. History repeats itself. On the public sphere, we have prominent pastors who are exposed to be liars, abusers. The church is, as the old hymn says, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And so Numbers 20 forces us to look at our own wandering hearts and to ask this extremely relevant question. How does God respond when his people and their leaders fail? How does God respond when, when we and, and our leaders fail? So if you've heard me preach before, you know that I like structure in my sermons, the big ideas and the main points, but this morning we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I, I want us to experience the story of Numbers 20, so we're just going to walk through it verse by verse as, as I read the story, and I'll give a little running commentary as we go along. We're trying to answer this question, how does God respond when his people and their leaders fail? So follow along with me. We're looking at Numbers chapter 20. Verse 1, it'll also be up there on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Verse 1, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. So let's, let's stop and orient ourselves to the context. You can see on the map where the Zin Desert is and where they think Kadesh probably is. It is right smack dab in the center of Nothing. <laughs> it is in the middle of nowhere. So why would Israel be there? So remember in the overview video, chapters 13 and 14 in Numbers, these 12 chosen spies enter the promised land, and 10 of them come back and they deliver a bad report so that the people start an uprising. They're going to overthrow Moses. They're going to go back to Egypt. And God declares that that whole generation, ages 20 and up, they are going to die in the desert and not enter the promised land. Just, just think for a moment if this church sinned so horrendously that God said, I will not do anything with this church until everyone aged 20 and up until they're dead. Like that's how serious their rebellion was. That's how serious God's judgment was on them. And so the people wander in the desert. They're living off of whatever God provides for them, so close to the promised land, and yet not allowed to enter. Not, not for a few weeks, for a few years, for 40 years, until there's only just a few people remaining from that first generation. You have Caleb and Joshua. They were the two spies that gave a good report and then you have the three leaders. You have Moses, Miriam, Moses' sister, and then Aaron, Moses' brother. But then we read this in verse 1. Miriam died where? The promised land? No. Died there. Was buried there. And then we glance down at the end of chapter 20. And Aaron also dies. And then there was one. Moses who had spoken with God on Mount Sinai, he's technically part of the first generation, but surely if anyone could enter the promised land, he could. We read on in verse two. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and against Aaron. It's interesting to me that what led the people of Israel to grumble was usually their physical needs, right? They were thirsty, and they were cranky because they were thirsty. I get that. 
Recovery programs often use the acronym HALT to describe uh, when people are most prone to relapse. Uh, HALT, so you have hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, right? And uh, there's, there's no getting around it. We are more affected by our physical circumstances than we would like to be. Some of us think, uh, I, I am just consistent spiritually. I'm the monk out in the desert. You know, it, my physical circumstances do not affect me. But we are bodily, physical beings. Our physical circumstances do affect our spiritual faith. We too, when we are hungry, angry, lonely, tired. We are especially prone to sin. We're especially prone to falling to temptation. We're especially prone to give up on trusting God. But, and here's the but, even though it is true that we are physical beings, even though we need to be aware of that, that is never given as a justification for sin in God's eyes. It's not an acceptable excuse, but it's still helpful for us to diagnose our own hearts and to to study our internal process, to know when am I especially vulnerable to sin. We can even put ourselves inside of Moses' mind and heart at this point. Think about it. He's, He's grieving the loss of his sister. And here he is, decades after being with the people of God, He was there at Exodus 17, and now he's here at Numbers 20 with yet another generation of sinful, rebellious people who say they want to follow God, but then it seems like they do pretty much everything in their power to undermine that relationship. We can understand how Moses, the leader, is not in a good place either. He's feeling taken for granted. He's weary. He's grieving. He's frustrated. One last thing about verse 2. Notice how it says, they assembled themselves together against. That has a a tone of threat to it. This is an uprising, a mob starting. They're grabbing the torches and the pitchforks here. We move on to verse 3. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Okay, so they're not happy. (laughs) But what are their specific complaints? First, they wish that they had died when their brothers perished before the Lord. What are they talking about there? Most scholars think that they're talking about the rebellion of Korah that happened in Numbers 16. A a group of people started rebelling against Moses, opposing him, and as judgment, God made the ground split open and swallow these people whole. So get what these people are saying here. Man, they had it good. (laughs) Because... Probably they died all at once, but here we are just dying slowly of thirst. And that's the second complaint. It's not just we're dying of thirst, it's you've brought us here. They question Moses' leadership. They blame him for leading them out into the desert, even though it was the previous generation's sin that made them wander in the wilderness and not able to enter the promised land. In their deluded, dehydrated minds, 
this literal slavery is preferable to their current situation. They have a third complaint, and this one's more subtle. It has a little bit of wordplay going on here. Can I just have your permission for a moment to be a nerd? All right, just, just a minute here. So, look at verse 5. The people say, why have you brought us to, to this evil place, this evil place? We were told in verse 1 that this place is called Kadesh. Kadesh. Uh, I've got it up there on the screen on the left side. That name sounds very much, just one letter different, very much like another Hebrew word, a word that will play a significant role later in the story. That word is Kadosh. Can you all say that with me? Kadosh. Kadosh. It means holy. It means separate, distinct. In Isaiah 6, when the angels are singing to the Lord, they're singing Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. So we've got Kadesh and Kadosh. Here's here's the point. The narrator is telling us that God brought his people to a place that sounds very much like holiness. He brought them to holiness. And yet, the people are calling it an evil place. Their grumbling is not just voicing their opinion or complaining. They believed that their God, the one who had saved them and loved them, that this God was planning to do evil to them. History repeats itself. They had lost their faith. They were committing the same sin as their father and mother, Adam and Eve, determining for themselves what is good and what is evil. No, no, you don't understand. Good was what we had back in Egypt. Evil is what God is doing to us right now. God's covenant partners were saying, you've betrayed us. But really, it's they who are betraying the one who loves them. He brought them to a place called holiness, and they thought, this is nothing but evil here. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. So Moses and Aaron run away. And they flee to God's presence in the tabernacle. Now remember, Moses is well aware of what God could do to these people. He had just seen, you know, ground opening up and swallowing them whole. So he falls onto his face to intercede. He says, God, have mercy on this people, even though they will fail you over and over again. We often find Moses in that position throughout the Pentateuch. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said, spoke to Moses, saying, take the staff. And assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. Remember that word assemble earlier, it had that tone of threat of a mob, but God uses that word as well. He says, assemble the mob. Tell, tell that little protest to come out to this one tiny rock in the desert and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. I just want us to observe God's patience here. The people are thirsty. And that physical circumstance is leading them yet again to distrust God. And so God smites them down? No, he gives them what they need. Through an unexpected means, definitely. I mean, imagine you're hiking along and you just kind of lean up against a boulder and it just starts spurting water. I'm not, you know, it's, it's wild, unexpected. God is full of patience and mercy here. He's overlooking 
the people's sins, he, he immediately says, I'm going to provide for their needs. We read on, and this is where the story kind of comes to its climax in verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron assemb- gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the, peop- and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Pause. God has just denied Moses entry into the promised land because of what he does wrong here. And honestly, thousands of pages have, of ink have been spilled uh, on, on trying to figure out what exactly Moses does wrong here. And there's basically kind of four main theories. Uh, the first one is that Moses hits the rock instead of speaks to it. God says, speak to the rock. Moses hits it. Uh, that's the one I always heard in Sunday school growing up. The second theory is that Moses hits the rock twice, which, if you picture it, just you know, demonstrates a certain just lack of control. He's just kind of whacking the thing over and over. Dare I say rage? Third, Moses calls the people rebels, possibly dishonoring them and, and dishonoring their God and, you know, saying, hey, you idiots, you want me to bring water for you out of this rock? Like that, that's kind of the vibe. The fourth theory, and, and this is my wife's opinion as we were talking about it, Moses says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Possibly taking credit for the miracle that's about to happen and stealing the glory from God. With respect to my beloved Melissa, I think all four of those theories are good, but they sort of miss the point. Or or rather, I think the narrative is intentionally ambiguous about what Moses does wrong because it's not about his sinful actions. It's about his sinful heart. John Salehammer, an Old Testament scholar, wrote this. I've put it up on the screen. The fundamental problem with each of these explanations is that they go beyond what is given in the text itself and thus miss an important feature. It should be noted that just at the moment in the narrative where the writer could have described the actual misdeed of Moses and Aaron, it is interrupted by a word from the Lord. When he spoke to Moses and Aaron, the Lord did not say what they had done that was wrong, but rather and simply that they had acted in unbelief and thus did not treat him as holy before the people. So in other words, Moses' failure was that in this moment he was acting exactly like the rest of the first generation, not believing in God to provide, not upholding him as holy. And so he receives the same punishment that the rest of the first generation received. God is saying, if you don't believe that I'm going to provide and protect and bring you into the promised land, then you will not enter yourself. But while we look at Moses, I don't want us to miss this little detail in verse 11. So the people are in sin. Moses is in sin. Everyone in this story is doing everything wrong. There is no good guy here except God. And so there's this moment of drama when Moses hits the rock and water comes out. 
Just a little trickle of water? No, we are given the detail that it comes out abundantly. It was gushing out of this random rock in the desert. Uh, On the slide, I've put Castle Geyser in Yellowstone. Its eruption height is 90 feet in the air. That's what we're meant to picture when we're looking at the story in Meribah. Just imagine being there in person. You are thirsty, you are worried, you're about to die. You see Moses do something, you're kind of far back. And all of a sudden, you just get the, you're in the splash zone. You see the spray come out at you. It's spilling onto the desert sands. It's saturating this dead place with waters of life. It's spilling over your ankles. It's a visual message to the people of God. God is saying, even when history repeats itself, even when you do exactly what your forefathers did, even when your leaders fail you, I will be merciful. I will give you not just what you need, I will give you more than that. I will silence your sins with my overwhelming grace. At the beginning we asked, how does God respond when his people and their leaders fail? And this is the answer from this story. God responds with just judgment and abundant mercy. Just judgment on those who do wrong, Moses, but abundant mercy that far exceeds it. God maintains who he is even when we fail to be who we're meant to be. God told Moses and the people of Israel the core of who he is, of his character in Exodus 34. He says this, the Lord, the Lord, who is this Lord? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Or the Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, and of course we are, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God is kadosh, he's holy, he is unique in his perfection and consistency, and like we sang earlier, he will never change. That's what the last verse of our story tells us, verse 13. These are the waters of quarreling, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. See, this is the remarkable thing about the Christian God, the God whom we worship. Our God would not be holy if he did not punish those who continuously rebel against him. He brings the just consequences of their selfishness and sin to bear. We actually don't want to worship a God who never punishes evil. But we know that our, we ourselves are evil, and so we also have a holy God who would not be holy if he did not show abundant, overflowing, redeeming love to his people. The God of the Bible is both of these things simultaneously. You can't have just one or the other. If you are a follower of God, you don't just have a judge. You don't just have a savior. You have both. This is God. He does not change. He is who he is. And our God punishes evil, but then overwhelms those he loves with mercy and grace. 
But, but then this creates a problem because we're looking at our own hearts, we're looking at history repeating itself, and we're saying, okay, but we are very sinful. We are very wayward. So how can God both punish sin and show mercy to us? How, how can God give us grace without denying his justice? I think that the waters of Meribah story give us insight into how God can be holy, how he can be himself. The Apostle Paul was a student of the Old Testament scriptures. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he was meditating on this story in Numbers, and he offers a reflection on what it means. He says this, For they, the people of Israel, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What he's saying is that in this story we just read, there's another character, the rock that was hit. And that rock was pointing towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's giving us a clue as to how God saves his people. See, the rock in Meribah was an unlikely source of salvation. But when it was struck as a result of people's sin, what flowed out was not judgment, but mercy. Not a stingy amount of mercy, but abundant, lavish, plentiful grace. When Jesus, the rock, was struck, it also looked like an unlikely source of salvation, is what Paul is saying. A Jewish teacher who claimed to be God, who was tortured by Roman soldiers, who was crucified on a cross. How could that man, who claimed to be God, ever be a source of life. But when Jesus was struck, he took the judgment and he poured out mercy. We see it vividly on that odd little detail in the crucifixion story. If, if you've read it before, you know this. After Jesus is dead, he's hanging on the cross there and a Roman soldier takes a spear and he pierces the side of Jesus. And what flows out? Blood and water. Jesus is Leviticus and Numbers fulfilled. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the lamb who was slain, the blood that washes us clean, and he is the rock that gives abundant mercy to the thirsty. Jesus himself used this image in John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Every person here, every person in the Twin Ports area, every person in all the nations of the world, we are thirsty in our souls. And Jesus says, believe that I can quench that thirst, that I can satisfy your longings. Yes, the church is going to fail. History is going to repeat itself. Yes, Christian leaders are going to fail, and I will give those who deserve judgment, judgment. But my grace and mercy, Jesus says, will overcome your inconsistencies because I am consistent enough for the both of us. I am holy, 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 ever faithful, always holy. And then notice in this verse, Jesus promises that all 
those who believe in him, all those who follow the way of Jesus, that we ourselves will become sources of water and life for those around us. Like we are rocks in desert places, scattered all around, so that in this week, we can bring blessing to our neighbors. We can bring refreshment to our city. We can point to the source of all life, the spiritual rock that is Christ. Just, I want that image to sit in your heart this week, that of Jesus, a rock being split and pouring out, not judgment, but overwhelming grace, a flood. Just get a cup of tea and ponder that for a little while. Go on a walk and think about it. Jesus is a geyser of grace for you, pouring out his mercy. In his meditation on numbers in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says the reason that we read these stories, why were they written? He says they were written as an example to instruct us in following God. So I want to end with just a few practical points of application for us. How can the story of the waters of Meribah actually change our lives this week? Well, first, follow the leader who never fails. It happens just about every other month or so that a prominent pastor or a Christian leader is shown to be a really bad person. Whether that's having a sexual affair, having sketchy financial practices, having abusive leadership, or so on. I have a friend who became a Christian, and he he grew in his faith and matured under the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. And when it was revealed that that man had done terrible, awful things to women, my friend's faith was utterly rocked. Because it's like, I, I learned from this man, now is... Is that all gone? Is that meaningless? Was it worthless? Was it lies? The only thing that gave my friend solid ground to stand was to realize that his faith was not in imperfect human leaders, but in Jesus, the one who never fails, the one who will never let us down. There's, there's a temptation to see Christian leaders from afar, and you sort of elevate them up on a pedestal, and the real danger comes when the leader themselves starts to begin that, uh, believe that about themselves. I really am on a pedestal. So, you know, if, if you're watching somebody online, whether, whether you're watching uh, us or, or another pastor, you know, there's, there is a temptation to think, you know, that person has it all together. But as you guys know, when you come in person and you actually meet me, Kyle, your elders, you know, we're, we're a lot sweatier in person. <laughs> we're, we're a lot messier. Um, let, let me just dispel the illusion right now. Rock Hill, your pastors and your elders are going to let you down sometimes. Hopefully in, in, not in the, those massive ways that some of those fallen pastors got into. But we are going to disappoint you at times. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have to ask your forgiveness for things. Uh, just remember that your leaders need the same mercy from God that you do. Yes, we've been called to shepherd and to lead this church, and we do so with, with joy and love, but your pastors have a pastor. We all do. We are following the chief shepherd. And our faith must be grounded not in me or Kyle or 
Tim Keller or Jen Wilkin or fill in the blank. Our faith is founded and grounded in the leader who never fails, in Jesus. Second, commit not to grumble. This is actually in 1 Corinthians 10. This is the application that Paul draws from this story, telling the church not to grumble like Israel did. See, it's very, very telling that the, the primary sin that Israel gets into over and over and over again in the Pentateuch is that they complain. They mutter under their breath. They whine. They voice their displeasure loudly and assertively demanding their own way. Now, is it wrong to talk with your leaders about concerns you have or opinions in a calm and in a reasonable way, not at all. In fact, if, if we never had any dissenting opinions in this church, then we're starting to get into cult territory. <laughs> but, but a complaining, irritable, short-tempered spirit is not what the community of God is called to be. We're called to be something better. We're supposed to handle conflict differently here. And so commit now not to grumble. Catch yourself when it starts small, when, when a burr catches onto your soul, and it just begins to fester and grow bitter. I love this church, but it's a lot harder to deal with our grumbling when it's grown to the uprising level. So let's catch it when it's just a mere annoyance and ask, is this something that I should bring to the person who offended me? Or is this something that I should put to the side and overlook because I love my church more. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So it is actually not a sign of maturity to voice every offense that crosses your mind. Rather, what maturity looks like is to imitate God's patience, knowing that we're messy people here and then extending abundant mercy to them because we ourselves have been shown abundant mercy. Finally, ask yourself, what can break the cycle? As I mentioned at the beginning, God had quarreled with Israel, or Israel had quarreled with God at Meribah in Exodus 17, and then the next generation quarrels with God at Meribah in Numbers 20. And if we're following the thread of the story, we're beginning to ask is there anything that's going to change the pattern? Every so often we get glimpses of Israel or of Moses doing something wonderful, of committing themselves to the Lord, and then it seems like the next chapter they fail and fall into it again. God's people receive mercy, they repent, they commit to following God, and then they wander away and rebel again. Clearly we need more than water. We need more than our physical needs Met. The problem with Israel wasn't that they were thirsty, it's that they were deluded. And so what needs to change is something on the inside, something with our hearts. And that question leads us directly into the book of Deuteronomy, which we're going to be talking about next week. Next Sunday, Pastor Kyle is going to preach on Deuteronomy 10. We're going to finish the Torah, the Pentateuch. Uh, and I encourage you to, to read Deuteronomy this week, the whole book. It's incredibly rich but it's actually pretty easy to read because it's just a set of sermons and messages uh, by Moses as they're about to enter the promised land. 
Um, most of our city groups are also studying the book uh, ahead of time. So if you want to get into Deuteronomy and then come on Sunday, I've heard from a lot of people that it's really kind of raised their anticipation for Sunday. Of like, okay, so I understand some things about numbers, but I've still got some questions that I want answered. It really helps you get into the text and study it. But for now, just ponder that question. What has the power to change the human heart? Some of you people, some of you know people who, who have hearts that seems like they will never change. You want them to be better. You want them to be different. And no matter what, you're thinking, there's nothing that's going to change this person. What has the power to change my heart? What has the power to change every heart? Come back next week and we'll talk about that. But let me pray for us. Father God, we are grateful that you take evil seriously and are just in your judgment. And yet, we are evil ourselves. And we need your mercy and grace this morning. Father, thank you for being so consistently good to us. I pray that as we go from this place, that we would be sources of life and refreshment for those around us, drawing always and pointing to Jesus the rock, the source of life. We pray in his good and holy name. Amen. The Lord's Supper, the communion table, is a sign of God's judgment and mercy combined. Because it's here that Jesus says, remember my body broken for you, Remember my blood shed for you, and remember why it needed to be broken and shed, because of our sin. But through his grace, through his death and resurrection, we can be forgiven. We can be washed clean, and we can be renewed to new resurrection life. If you are not a Christian, uh, I'd ask that you just stay in your seat as we take communion, not because, you know, I want you to sort of separate yourselves. I'm really glad that you're here and asking questions, um, but my heart for you, my desire is that if you're there, that you would not take the communion elements, but you would point to what they point to, which is Jesus, and that you would take him and receive him this morning. But you might not be there, and that's okay. Uh, for those of you who do proclaim the name of Jesus, who say, I am a follower of him, uh, then come forward when you're ready. You can come up the center aisles and somebody will hand you the communion elements. Um, you can take it once you get back to your seats when you're ready. There's also contactless communion in the back if, if that's more comfortable for you. But when you're ready, come forward and take communion. <laughs>